Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. It is Tuesday, June 29th, 2021. It's amazing. We're almost, we are almost done with June. Uh, new book out today, The Cruelty is the Point, The Past, Present, and Future of Trump's America by Adam Serwer. And Adam Serwer writes, Donald Trump has claimed credit for any number of things he benefited from but did not create. And the Republican Party's reigning ideology is one of them a politics of cruelty and exclusion that strategically exploits vulnerable Americans by portraying them as an existential threat against whom acts of barbarism and disenfranchisement become not only justified but worthy of celebration. This approach is a long history in American politics. The most consistent threat to our democracy has always been the drive of some leaders to restrict its blessings to a select few. And Adam Serwer, who is a staff writer uh, at The Atlantic and the author of this book, joins us on his publication date. So congratulations on, on the book, Adam. Thank you. And thank you for having me. Uh, before we get into this, because this is going to be a deep dive. I mean, I think people can tell mm -hmm. this is going to be deep stuff. Before we do this, we have to do the palate cleanser that I do um, pretty much on a daily basis. And I've, I have tried to swear off Tucker Carlson on a regular basis, but I'm sorry. Last night's uh, Tucker Carlson rant uh, was just too good to pass up. Uh, in case you missed it, here's Tucker Carlson um, talking about the strawberries or something or other. On. Yesterday, we heard from a whistleblower within the U.S. government who reached out to warn us that the NSA, the National Security Agency, oh. is monitoring our electronic communications Big and is planning true. to leak them in an attempt to take this show off the air. NSA. Now, that's a shocking claim, and ordinarily we'd be skeptical of it. It's illegal for the NSA to spy on American no. citizens. It's a crime. It's not a third world country. No. Things like that should not happen in America. No, they shouldn't. But unfortunately, they do happen, and in this case, they did happen. Oh. The whistleblower, who is in a position to know, repeated back to us information about a story that we are working on that could have only come directly from my texts and emails. There's no other possible source for that information, period. The NSA captured that information without our knowledge and did it for political reasons. Of course. The Biden administration is spying on us. We have confirmed that. Whoa, we have confirmed that. Now, I could go into a lengthy discussion of why Tucker Carlson is going full Alex Jones here, but I, I, I think this deserves a, a more serious response like this. They're coming to take me away, ha-ha, they're coming to take me away, ho-ho, hee-hee, ha-ha, to the funny farm where life is beautiful all the time, and I'll be happy to see those nice young men in their clean white coats, and they're coming to take me away. I'm sorry, uh, Adam. <laughs> So you were expecting a much more serious conversation, but don't you wake up on so many mornings thinking just it's the how do you cope with the just pure insanity of it all? Um, I think that clip is actually an amazing example of the kind of historical amnesia or deliberate historical erasure that I'm talking about. Uh, in that, you know, here here's Tucker Carlson saying, you know. Um, uh, we, we don't, people don't get spied on by the government in America. We're not a third world country. And it's like, have you ever, have you read a book about the history of the United States? I mean, like in the 20th century, uh, from, for, uh, do you know who J. Edgar Hoover is? Um, we, 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 from, from Hoover's ascent to, you know, the church commission, the, the uh, United States federal authorities engage in a tremendous amount of spying on people because of their political beliefs. Now, a lot of those people, 
happened to be on the left and Tucker Carlson would probably cheer if the government spied on them. But it's sort of a crazy thing to be like, I am the first person who's ever been spied on illegally in the history of the United States in America because I am I am Tucker Carlson, an important person, the, the tribune of the working class after it's, all. It, it, it's, um, it seems highly unlikely, however, that Tucker Carlson is in fact being targeted by the NSA. When you know you're what, there- I, 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 I did not hear any convincing evidence for that claim. And I also find that Carlson has a very Trumpian manner in which he likes to uh, portray the forces of the world as attempting to constantly destroy him because he is so committed to the uh, safety of the Fox News audience and their ideals and principles. Well, right. I mean, so, it's, just, it's, just a, it's just a rhetorical mode that is, uh, it's the rhetorical mode of a demagogue that is tried and true and has worked for centuries in society after society, but it's also extremely obvious. Well, as you had pointed out, of course, the cruelty is the point, but also the paranoia is the point. We are victims. Um, they are coming for us. They hate us. That is, that's also and the therefore, point. And therefore, we have to take extreme measures to stop them. Exactly. That's always because the next. They, they are so evil. They are so, they are so dangerous. So let's talk about this, this book, which is a series of essays, and, and it is based on the, the, the line that you, you came up with during the, the, the Trump presidency that really became kind of a catchphrase of the Trump presidency, that the cruelty is the, the, the point. And it, and it seems so um, on point. And I want to talk about, um, you, know, you talk about the, the, the cruel logic of the Republican Party. So at, at, the, at the heart of your argument, though, is that Trump himself is not essential to Trumpism, to understand why Trumpism arose. And even after Trump departs, we're still going to have that culture. Could you talk about that a little bit? So I think Trump's great innovation was showing how much the Republican Party could get away with. I mean, if you remember in 2012, there was this sort of soul searching that happened immediately after Mitt Romney lost about whether they were too harsh on immigration. They needed to reach out beyond the party. And the people who ultimately came to lead, lead Trump's campaign actually decided what we need is a candidate who speaks specifically to, to, to white identity and makes racial issues more salient. And then we're going to go ahead and we're going to win the election. Um, but the point of the book really is that, you know, I'm not talking about cruelty as an individual problem, although it obviously is. It's an individual quality. It's part of human nature. We're all capable of it. What I'm focused on it as, as a cruelty as a part of politics, specifically the way that it's used to demonize certain groups so you can justify denying them their basic rights under the Constitution and exclude them from the political process. And this was Trump's immediate uh, you know, this was his pitch from the beginning when he comes out talking about, you know, all the drug dealers and rapists uh, uh, who are coming across the border when he's talking about, you know, banning Muslims from coming to the United States, when he's talking about black Americans living in hell holes. He's saying these other people are ruining your life. Um, and, and, you know, I will take America back to when it was good, um, when America's uh, it, it, traditional racial hierarchy was more um, established, and then we wouldn't have had any of these problems, such as you know the president who I claim was born in Kenya. Um, and, and, but my my argument about this is that this is not simply a function of individual vice, but it is a partially it is incentivized by the structure of our politics because our system allows one party to hold power without winning a majority of the votes. It becomes more urgent to persuade that one group that they're on the verge of destruction. So anything they do to prevent that destruction is justified. And you can see that, you know, this, this is in, in, in one way, you can think of it as a virus that can infect any party or ideology. 
Um, but once it does, the, the, the keystone to their politics becomes this other group of people is trying to destroy us in our way of life. And we have to take extreme measures to stop them, whether it's, you know, uh, excluding, it's excluding people from the polity, gerrymandering, uh, you know, a state so that it's impossible to win no matter how many votes you actually get. Um, whether it's, you know, targeting trans children with these laws designed to deny them gender affirming care, whether it's banning Muslims from coming to the United States, whether it's separating uh, migrant families to torture uh, their parents so that they, uh, people decide not to come. I mean, these are, these are all manifestations of this kind of exclusivist politics, which is, you know, part of the duality of the American idea, which is, you know, a country founded on the idea that all men are created equal, but, you know, was founded by slave owners who did not extend that understanding either to their property or to other white men who owned property. So the the word, you, you, yeah, the, the word that you use, cruelty, is a very powerful, feels very specific word that the cruelty is the, the point. And you're describing it as, you know, part of other political traditions, as, as if it's sort of an intentional strategy, that it's thought out. But, you know, what I'm wondering is, and I'm, by the way, I'm, I'm agreeing that it is the cruelty is the point. And it's not just the policies, it's just kind of the culture of our of our politics. How much of this is thought out and how much of it is visceral? And I know you want to talk about it in terms of, of, of systems, but cruelty is, again, a very specific thing that it's not just exclusive. It's not just otherizing. It's the there does seem to be a relish yeah. uh, taken by meanness, cruelty, the infliction of pain. Right. I mean, they're they're enjoying it. I mean, look, there, there's this is this is also like, a, you know, you can think back to when you're a kid and maybe you're insecure right. about being in class. You, you want the other kids to like you and they're right. all making fun of another kid and you join yes. in because you want to fit in and you want to be a part of the group. And, and, and you're not really thinking about how you're hurting this other kid who's already isolated. Um and I think that I try to say I try to use that as an example because I want to explain that I really you know I'm not just saying conservatives are cruel I'm saying this is a part of human nature and this is a manifestation of that part of human nature in our politics. Um, but I do think I will say a couple things. I do think with Trump it is strategic, and I do think it has been strategic in other moments in the past. I mean I don't know if uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell two quick stories. One is everybody knows who George Wallace is. Um, we remember him as one of history's great villains, even though, you know, mm -hmm. he's arguably one of the most influential political figures of the 20th century. Uh, but, you know, he runs his first race and he's like kind of a non-racial populist um, and he gets his his ass kicked. Um, and he says, you know, I'm never going to get and he gets his ass kicked by a racist populist. And so he says, you know, I'm never going to get out and worded again. Um, and he never was. Uh, because he made a conscious decision to approach politics in that way. And if you look at Donald Trump, and, and I think there, you know, th there's a sort of Rosetta Stone to his politics, in my view, which is that in the 1990s, you know, David Duke is running for Senate in Louisiana, and everybody's like, there's no way this Klansman is is, is going to win. And then he, he gets much closer than people expect him to get, and he loses largely because the black voter in Louisiana just goes hard against him. Um in that, you know, in that save the country type way. Um, and what and, and Trump is watching this and he's on CNN and he says, you know, I think this David Duke guy, you know, I think he could get a lot of Republican votes. You know, this, you know, Pat Buchanan is basically the same ideas as David Duke, but in a better package. I think he's going to give George H.W. Bush a lot of trouble. He didn't say George H.W. Bush because that's not what we called him at the time. Um, but he's, you know, Donald Trump is giving this analysis of, 
conservative politics where he thinks that the kind of um, you know, less overtly white supremacist, but dog whistle white identity politics that, that, that Buchanan is engaging in, that Duke is engaging in, is going to be pretty successful in the Republican Party. And then 2016, a couple decades later, he's like, David Duke? Who's that? I've never heard of the guy. Why would, you know, it is, it is, he knows what he's doing. Like when he goes up and he's like, get that son of a bitch off the field talking about, you know, black athletes who are kneeling in protest of police brutality. He, and, and the reporting at the time was he was telling his advisors, my people love that. You know what I mean? He, like, yeah. to, to some extent, when I say the cruelty is the point, me and, you know, I am in agreement with Donald Trump. It is Donald Trump's apologists who are insisting that what he is saying is true and what I am saying is true is in fact not true in order to defend their understanding of him in such a way that it does not reflect poorly on them in their own minds. But there is not much disagreement between me and Donald Trump about what Donald Trump is about. Well, you also, you know, point out this this whole, you know, not just the the demonizing of religious and ethnic minorities, but 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 also the what um, what what people on on the right were able to get away with, you know, from you know the the shattering migrant families, banning Muslim travelers, to valorizing war crimes and denigrating African, Latino, and Caribbean immigrants as being from shithole countries. You know, I, I remember. Um, do you remember a few years ago uh, one of the one of the Trumpian trolls um, on the internet, a guy named Kurt Schlichter, who actually writes a column for Town Hall. Guys, he's appeared on uh, Fox News and um, he, he, he tweeted out a- after there was a report about a young boy, a young two-year-old boy um, who had Yemeni boy who had died. Uh, this was the story of this young uh, boy who was brought to the U.S. by his father to be treated for a worsening uh, degenerative uh, brain condition. And he, and he died. And, and Kurt Schlichter tweeted out, I don't care. And it struck me is that this was also part of this new political culture where there was sort of a relish in in um, in, in, in in cultivating a lack of sensitivity in in, in 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 relishing the fact that, you know, kids were separated from their children. And I guess and I guess that's why I'm, I'm keep coming back to this word cruelty as a specific thing, because. I think that we've always had this idea that Americans were, were pretty nice, compassionate people, that were good neighbors. Um, a lot of the people who associate themselves with this movement consider themselves to be Christians. And yet, the, you know, they, they think of themselves as Christians, and, and yet they, they do seem to take a certain degree of that kind of there, – there's, there's a thrill to cruelty, isn't there? I think there is. I think there's a thrill of transgression. I think especially because Republicans have convinced themselves that they are are kind of um, oppressed and endangered, that they are rebelling against the prevailing liberal orthodoxy. So when they transgress in a particular way that seems cruel to people outside of that community, to them, it's like we are breaking the rules in a way that's awesome. And that, again, is like a very human thing. It's just that, you know, you can't like, it's not simply that liberals, you know, happen to be super virtuous. That's not the argument that I'm making. It's that because the Democratic Party is reliant on such a diverse coalition of voters, uh, they cannot afford to revel in this kind of stuff in the same way. Like, you can absolutely find, you know, I'm, I, I live in Texas. I can remember when I can remember seeing tweets from liberals about, you know, how, you know, w- when I was freezing to death in my in, in, in my living room during the storm, I'm sitting there with a bubble coat, you know, with my <laughs> daughter bundled up and people are making jokes about how, you know, Texas had it coming because they voted for Abbott. That sucks. And that's also cruel. 
But the issue is that the the party cannot run on messages like that. Like, right. uh, you know, you know, it, 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 the senators from California, unlike Ted Cruz, when California had its blackouts, we're not talking about how terrible Texas is and how, you know, because they adopted a free, you know, a free market system and, 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 a deregulated system and, and separated their grid that, the, you know, uh, Texans deserve to freeze to death. That kind of diversity in a, in a party's base, um, you know, prevents them from engaging in that kind of performative cruelty that becomes a virtue because you, after all, you are attacking the people who are threatening you. You're the actual victim. You're just defending yourself. Um, and, and so you're rallying people when you're attacking these outgroups who, after all, are trying to destroy you. And like, you know, you can't you can't. Do, I mean, like, even if you are a Democrat, you are so absolutely completely reliant, despite the fact that most non-college white men vote for Republicans, you are still, because there are so many of them, you are still so reliant on them to hold power that there's no way that you're going to say pass voting laws that say, if you don't have a college degree, you can't vote. It's just not, you know, it's, it's, it's a question of the diffusion of power. It's, it's not just a question of, you know, personal individual goodness. So under the, the ideology that you are, you're, you're writing about, um, I mean, the, and the way, and the way it's playing out, is that it provides a pretext to deprive certain Americans of their fundamental rights. And because the attitude is it's not wrong because these people are usurpers. And I think one of the interesting things about your book is you trace all of this back to the Civil War, the aftermath of the Civil War, Reconstruction, um, and the whitewashing of the Civil War. And since we're having this debate about race, I thought it was very interesting that you, you describe how the process of whitewashing took place. And you talk about... Um, Alexander Stevens, who was the vice president of the Confederacy. So, you know, what, what was his approach to, to race and how, what role did he play in whitewashing what the Civil War was really all about? So th this is one of my favorite anecdotes because it, it, it echoes so clearly with the president. But Alexander Stevens, he's the vice president of the Confederacy. He gives his big speech at the, the, the dawn of the Civil War called the Cornerstone Speech. It's very famous where he says the cornerstone of our society is that the, the African is not equal to the white man and his, you know, he, he, he should be a slave for all time, basically. Um, and then at the end of the war, he's sitting in prison up north and he's writing in his diary and he's like, look, this whole cornerstone speech thing was total fake news. The reporter got it wrong. I tried to correct him. He didn't listen to me, but I didn't have any problem. I don't have any problem with Africans whatsoever. I have no problem with black people. And Jefferson Davis, similarly, he, he, he writes that, you know, slavery was not a cause of the war, but an incident. Um, and this uh, this this is the beginning of, of what's known as the lost cause, and the lost cause whitewashes the you know the, the Confederacy is not being founded to defend and expand slavery. Um, it, it, it it smears Reconstruction as you know quote Negro domination when it was actually a flawed but genuine attempt to build a multiracial democracy from the ashes of a slave empire. Um, and the and the reason why that's important is that understanding of history forms the ideological edifice of the Jim Crow system, as historians like Eric Foner and David Blight have written about. Um, it, it becomes that memory of, of that memory of that particular history becomes the justification for essentially white supremacy in the South, and that should give you an understanding of the stakes about this argument over history that we're having now, because if you D depending your how you remember your history defines whether or not you see the present as a just one. And fundamentally, we're arguing about history, but we're also arguing about what to do. You know, by extension, we're arguing about what to do about our current problems. And the Republican Party, unfortunately, has taken this course 
um, of trying to, rather than win over voters from outside their base, trying to restrict them from the electorate so that they are insulated from their disapproval. Um, and that, that's a very dangerous idea that has led to a lot of problems in American history, as, as I write about in the book. You make a very, very compelling case about how central this issue of voting rights has been in American history. The, the attempt by the radical Republicans to create, uh, after the war, uh, to create a multiracial d- democracy. Um, and, and the way that that was, was countered by, by white Southerners who, uh, you know, who, who really were focused on the franchise, severing black Americans from the franchise. And that had huge political consequences because they succeeded in severing black Americans, making black Americans, black males at that time, um, invisible in American politics. And that had long term consequences, didn't it, for both political parties? Yeah, I mean, it, it had tremendous long-term consequences. I mean, because, you know, the Republican Party had obviously was born in the fires of abolition. Um, you know, it, it, in, in the aftermath of the Civil War, they make this genuine commitment to trying to write the equality of man into the Constitution. Um, but when, but but it was, it was, it was in part a partisan, self-interested decision. It was idealistic um, and it was beautiful, but it was also partisan. It was also that the Republicans understood that without the black vote, the Republican Party had no chance of holding power in the South. Um, and so, it, it, you know, they were acting both in the interests of the American idea, but also in the interests of the Republican Party. And once the Democrats successfully severed black Americans from the franchise, Republicans no longer had any motivation to to really defend black rights because there was no constituency for it. They had sort of come, what emerged after that was the kind of bipartisan consensus over white supremacy that, you know, basically wrote black Americans out of American society for decades. Um, And that had tremendous implications, not only for American democracy, but for, uh, you know, for for, uh, everything from the welfare state to, uh, you know, uh, imperialism abroad. I mean, w- when you look at the debates over like colonization of the Philippines and stuff like that, there's a lot of Democrats who are saying, oh, so you guys were, were talking about how all men are created equal, but now, you, you know, you're treating uh, people in the Philippines worse than we treat black people in the South. So obviously you've come to understand the wisdom of our philosophy that only white men yeah. should be allowed to guide the ship of state. Um, you've accepted our doctrine of white man's government. Um, and so th- this th- this is, you know, again, uh, this goes back to the founding. This is a contradiction of the founding. It's these dueling impulses of all our created equal and white man's government have been battling, um, you know, since the country came into existence. And, and you know, for the most part, you know, since 1965, we've lived in this sort of fragile experiment with multiracial democracy. And, you know, that idea remains the greatest threat to it. Um, and probably will for the foreseeable future, unless you know something dramatic changes. Well, what I also found interesting was was the way you you de- you describe the uh, in, in, during Reconstruction the disenfranchisement of of black men um, uh, under the rubric of defending democracy. They actually came up with a theory by which disenfranchisement was necessary to protect democracy. Right. Uh, that the democratic sovereignty in America was conferred, uh, should only be conferred upon qualified voters and black men um, because of their hatred and ill will toward their former owners did not qualify and actually were destroying democracy by their mere participation. You write, disenfranchising them, therefore, was not merely justified, but an act of self-defense protecting democracy against Negro domination. 
So, right. so they, they turned democracy on its head. Do you hear echoes of that in, you know, defenses of voter integrity now? Yeah, well, I do. And I, I just want to mention that the person who wrote that was John Tyler Morgan. And he, he, was, a, he was a former Confederate who became an Alabama, six-term Alabama Democratic senator. Um, and, and his, you know, it, it is, he is making a reverse racism argument. <laughs> he's saying, you know, black people hate white people so much that we have to disenfranchise them. And he's, he's a guy who literally fought, he betrayed his country and fought um, on, on, on behalf of the cause of human bondage. Uh, treason in defense of slavery. Um, and he's complaining about all this black animus towards white people as a justification for disenfranchisement. So th there's no, there's actually no level of, you know, uh, uh, of racism that will prevent someone from saying, actually, you're the real racist um, and, and, and you're trying to oppress me. But this idea that, you know, the um, the other side, the, the, the other parties constitute, consti not, not simply like, you know, they cheated to win or something like that, but the other side's constituency is illegitimate. And this is something the, 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 the plotters in Wilmington who executed the only successful coup d'etat on American soil, they, uh, they, they read this thing, that, this document that they call right before they, they you know, engage in this uh, massive attack on the black community in Wilmington, North Carolina. They read this, this thing called the White Declaration of Independence, and they don't just say that, you know, black men are, have, have exercised the franchise in a way inimical to their interests. They also are angry at white Republicans for cooperating in an interracial coalition coalition with these black men. And they see that as an affront to democracy, because as Morgan writes, he, Morgan wrote uh, an introduction to de Tocqueville's um, democracy where he says, he, you know, he understood, you know, that, uh, that we, the people meant white people. Hmm. Um, and, and that's Morgan's belief. And that's the belief of, 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 of the coup plotters. And this idea has metastasized to where, you know, it's on display when you see the, 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 the attack on the Capitol is sort of reconstruction or redemptionist farce where it's like, you know, it's not, a, it's not an effort that's going to succeed. These people are kind of goofballs, but they genuinely do want to violently overthrow the election. To this day, Trump is saying things like if Mitch McConnell and Bill Barr had courage, I'd still be in the white house. And what he yeah. means is the, 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 the votes of the, of the majority of the country should not be recognized, especially as Trump himself put it, you know, you can't let Detroit and Philadelphia decide an election. Everybody knows what that means, even when they lie to themselves about uh, about what he means when he says it. They all know what that means. We all know what that means. And that belief um, that, you know, the, the interracial coalition is legitimate, is illegitimate. And the and the white party, the largely white party is the legitimate one is, you know, it's not a partisan thing. It, you, that's this dynamic used to be reversed. It used to be the Democrats were the party of white identity. Um, but the, the thing that we know is that when a party does not ha draw from a diverse base of voters, it is going to turn against democracy as a defense of what it sees as its birthright, which is political hegemony in the United States of America. So tell me a little bit more about this coup in, in Wilmington, North Carolina, where uh, I think we're in the process of rediscovering uh, for, forgotten chapters in American history. This is a rather extraordinary moment. What year did it take place and who was overthrown? Uh, so this is so, so this is uh, the, the, this took place in 1898. Um, and it's basically Wilmington in North Carolina in 1898 is uh, a sort of tremendous, tremendously successful black middle class community. And if you read, um, if, if, if you read Paula Giddings' biography of Ida Wells, she describes this 
community in, in, in sort of rich detail. Um, and actually, the, the, one of the books that I cite in my book, in, in, in The Cruelty is the Point, is David Zucchino's Wilmington's Lie, which is about uh, the Wilmington coup. But what happens basically is that um, the, the white Democrats in the town basically overthrow the government at gunpoint, run them out of town. They engage in a massacre of the black community and they destroy this successful, thriving uh, middle class black community, much as happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, but this has a tremendous effect because the, uh, the there's a, a Republican president in office, McKinley, and he is completely silent about it, despite the fact that you know, th- th- these are rep- this is a Republican government that has been overthrown. These are Republican voters who are being massacred. Um, but McKinley has come into office saying, we're not doing any of this sectional stuff anymore. We have some disagreements, but they're ideological. We're perfectly, you know, we're, we're, we're the wounds of the Civil War are healed. So he doesn't want to respond at all to what is essentially a massacre and a coup in Wilmington. And the response to that is another wave of violence and disenfranchisement in the South that makes the process in redemption fully complete. Because the Wilmington plotters get away with it with impunity, they serve as a model um, for, for, for what is you know often referred to as the nadir of race relations in the United States by historians. This is what kicks it off, is the knowledge that you can get away with mass murder in the, in, in the name of white men's government. And the Republicans who, you know, passed the Civil War amendments are not going to do anything about it anymore because, after all, there's no constituency demanding that they do. Yeah, at the risk of repeating myself, you know, that these these chapters have been have been whitewashed out of out of history. We have forgotten many of them and they do cast a, an awful lot of doubt on this, on the on the story, on the on the narrative that uh, folks like Ted Cruz, I think, would like to tell, which is, um, you know, a, a constant a constant uh, upward arc of of improvement Um you know, contrasting the obviously the, the history with the with the uh, with the original aspirations, but you know that we've always you know gotten closer and closer to these aspirations of the founding fathers, and uh, it's been it's been very shaky. So let me just ask you and push it back on, on one thing though, because you know you're describing um, you know conservative politics as and 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 by the way, correct me in any way I, if I'm misstating the position um, that the that the right. Uh, is, is, is you describe it as white identity politics. And yet one of the things we've discovered recently is, you know, the black, Hispanic and Asian American voters are actually to the right of white Democrats on a lot of issues. And uh, David Leonard writes in his newsletter just this morning, he said, you know, many voters of color are also skeptical of immigration and free trade. They favor border security as well as some abortion restrictions. They are worried about crime. They oppose cuts to police funding and they are religious. So doesn't that kind of complicate the narrative that all of this is about white identity politics when, in fact, you see the number of of uh, of Americans of color who also share a lot of these attitudes? I mean, no. I mean, I think I think there's two distinct things here. One is what identity politics is not is inherently tied to certain ideas about democracy, but it's not necessarily tied to particular policies. It does not surprise me at all. um, You know, black opinion, black political opinion is much more diverse than it's often portrayed as the uh, the unanimity of the black vote on the Democratic side is largely uh, a response to uh, the Republican Party's 
approach uh, to to use of white identity politics. There are a lot of uh, very religious, you know, what what you would describe as socially conservative black voters who vote for Democrats precisely because they understand that their role in a democracy is threatened by the opposite party and that the Democratic Party, which is to their left on, on many of their personal issues is nonetheless going to defend their place in the polity. So I, I don't think there's really a contradiction there. What's interesting, um, it, you know, it is interesting it, it, what you're referring to. There are a lot of white voters who are to the left, um, even on matters that people consider, you know, quote unquote, uh, racial issues to the left of voters of color on, uh, 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 on those matters. But this is what I'm talking about as far as like, you know, a party that is made up of diverse coalitions, when you have to stitch together, you know, hipsters in Brooklyn and church ladies in <laughs> South Carolina, you ultimately, you know, you, you may not always come up with the best, the right policy. You may not always come up with the best policy. You may have trouble, you know, landing on one thing, but you're not going to try to prevent one group or the other, other from participating in the political system. I mean, I have, I, you know, I, I know plenty of conservative um, of, 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 of uh, what I would describe as conservative leaning black folks. Some of them are in my family. Um, but I think that this question of democracy is, is all, it's not, it's not unrelated, but it's sort of, it, it's connected, but it's, it's, it's slightly different from simply having conservative views on something like uh, crime or immigration or something like that. Obviously, you know, as I say in the, in the New York times piece, we're always going to have disagreements about those things. The issue is, uh, you know, when one party decides that they're not going to allow, uh, another, a, a particular group of people to fully participate in the process so they can get their way. Well, another aspect, and you've touched on this, another aspect of, of the politics of cruelty is the openness to the use of violence. And we've, of course, seen that with January 6th. So where do you see the arc bending on all this? Because I have to tell you that uh, I, I, I think that all of this has accelerated since January 6th, that rather than the fever breaking with the departure of Trump, that the appetite for this seems to be creating. There, there's some, some surveys out there suggesting that uh, the American right is more open to authoritarianism than the right in even some European countries. So where do you see this going, Adam? Um, I, I don't know. I, and I want to be careful because, you know, I, th I think the politics of Biden era may, may end up being more volatile than we think. Um, you know, I don't want to make predictions about what is going to happen. What I will say is that, you know, a lot depends. I mean, what happened in 2020 was despite losing the, the Senate and the presidency, Republicans did unexpectedly well. Um, and so that because they didn't pay as much of a price as they thought they were going to pay for, for Trumpist politics, um, they were not disincentivized from pursuing them or taking another path. And as long as the system allows them to hold power through this kind of uh, white identity politics, they're going to continue to pursue them, especially if they can bring in, you know, some people who have very conservative views, people of color who have very conservative views on the issues that you mentioned. Um, and I think that, I think that is much a much bigger problem than violence. I mean, the truth is that Americans have a very, very long and terrible history of political violence, but political violence has never been more less legitimate than it is today. And one of the ways you know that is that all this stuff about how the Capitol riot was an inside job or is a frame job or is an Antifa, people say those things because they understand that political violence is unpopular and they don't want to be associated with it. Um, so, uh, you know, while they're always going to be, I mean, like we are a very heavily armed country, they're always going to be armed lunatics who, who 
are capable of, of, of killing lots of people very quickly in the name of some perverted ideological cause. Um, but I'm less worried about that than with, you know, the radicalization of the median Republican on the issue of democracy, which I think won't necessarily result in violence, but could result in, you know, a breaking the, you know, the feedback loop that's necessary for democracy, which is that when politicians displease the public or don't do what the public wants, then they have to pay for it at the ballot box. You know, and I, and I, I think that, that those those attitudes have really been normalized within the Republican electorate. Um, they they basically have internalized the idea that we're not going to win a majority. So therefore, um, all of these tactics are completely justified. But on the issue yeah. of, of, of violence, it doesn't require a large number of people to become violent. And the kind of demonization that you're describing um, seems to be ratcheting up. The, 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 you know, I've used the analogy before of being, you know, drug dealers out there that the, the, the dosages seem to be increasing. The paranoia is increasing. Uh, the, 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 the threat is increasing. They want to destroy you. They want to kill you. They want to um, rip God out of your children's lives, et, et cetera. Given, given how volatile the political situation is, it, it, it feels as if so far we have kind of dodged a bullet not to have more political violence because it doesn't take a huge number. And within the last year, we've seen that there was a group of uh, a group of extremists who were thinking of kidnapping and possibly murdering the governor of Michigan. Now, fortunately, that was, uh, you know, that was uh, that was that was thwarted. They, they didn't hang Mike Pence. They didn't get into Nancy Pelosi. But sooner or later, this is going to become a. This is going to become a problem, and and I and I wonder how widely whether there will be. See, you and I might think, or I might think that there'd be a backlash against this. People would go, "That's horrible." Okay, we need to dial everything down, or whether it is going to feed into this culture of cruelty that you describe. That these people are so dangerous that they need to be resisted and fought. I mean, you read I some think, of the same things that I read. I mean, the yeah. you, know, you read some of the stuff in the yeah, there's, a lot of, there's a lot yeah. of like fantasizing online yeah. about right, right. revolution. You know, guys yeah. who, who who look like Martin Prince hyping each other up about how they're going to you know take down a platoon of Marines if they had to. <laughs> um, but, but like, you know, I, I just like to I. When I read about the history of the United States and I read about like the Klan during Reconstruction, which was, you know, the closest thing to ISIS, uh, you know, that we've ever had, you know, within, you know, American borders, um, you know, this this is like, you know, when you think of back to, you know, riots between abolitionists and pro-slavery crowds, you know, prior to the Civil War, when you think about the, you know, the, the anti-Catholic violence in the 19th century, I think... The tools of violence in the United States, we are a very heavily armed country and we have very, we have weapons that are capable of incredible devastation um, that you can just buy at a store. Um, and I, I think that is scary, but I also think, you know, it, I think the backlash to that would be tremendous. Mm -hmm. And I think that mo for the most part, people are just, uh, uh, you know, Obviously, there are people who are genuinely dangerous, but I think most of the people that we see are really just talking shit on the Internet and trying to sound tough. And it's pathetic. Um, but, you know, I, I'm not sure I can't I don't know if it's going to manifest in the kind of political violence no. that we well, used we don't to know. see in this country. We don't know. I, I imagine you were not surprised to read the accounts uh, over the last week or so of the of the of the president in the Oval Office urging uh, the, the military to go in and shoot people and crack heads. Uh, during the protests last year, um, the, uh, the the former president has had a real taste, um, kind of a lust for 
cruelty and violence that was really very, very notable. I mean, it's as you point out, it's, you know, Trumpism is not just Trump, but Trump himself really did cultivate a kind of a passion for, you know, seeing, you know, uh, for, for, for cruelty in a, in yeah. a, in a very I mean, direct he, way. And, and, and his supporters, they kind of ate it up. I mean, he, he, he's, he's sort of interesting because he's like obviously a, a physical coward. Like after he told everybody he was going to go with them to the Capitol, he like went home and watched it on TV. Um, <laughs> but he very much, he enjoys regaling his audiences with tales of, you know, physical brutality, you know, during the, during the 2016 election, he used to tell that apocryphal story about um, uh, uh, American soldiers shooting Filipino insurgents with um, bullets dipped in pig's blood because they were yeah. Muslim. Or, you know, he literally, you know, he, he's the first president to pardon like actual war criminals, like even Nixon didn't do that. Um, and he pardoned them because he wanted to say, he wanted to express the view that it is not, it is not actually a crime. It is heroic to abuse these kinds, these kinds of people. Um, to, it was an expression of hierarchy. Um, and, and so are many ritualistic acts of violence. I mean, when he, he he's talking or when he went to, he went to go speak to a bunch of a crowd of police in Long Island. And he made that joke about, yeah. uh, you know, don't be too nice to the guy slam his head into the car. Um, you know, the president very much revels in images of physical violence and encourages other people too as well. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's a part of his political culture, but it's also a part of that larger political culture of cruelty where those kinds of things, rather than becoming sort of, you know, depraved acts towards people who can't defend themselves, become, you know, heroic defenses of the only true Americans. Um, and that's, you know, at the center of his politics, even if, you know, he did better along the Rio Grande Valley in 2020 than in 2016. Yeah, I think one of the, the dark realizations of the last four years was that, uh, you know, I think you know, many people had tried to rationalize that people supported Trump in spite of some of those things and had to come to realize or, or accept the fact that uh, many people supported him because they, they liked that sort of thing, that that was, that was in fact a feature, not a bug of, of, of Trumpism. Adam Serwer, uh, thank you so much for joining me. The book is out today. Thanks for having me. The book is The Cruelty is the Point, the Past, Present, and Future of Trump's America. And you can read Adam in The Atlantic again. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again. 